Hello and welcome to the Boundless Book Club. On a normal day, you would find us at work doing what we do at the Emirates Literature Foundation, and not a small part of that is talking and thinking about books and the worlds they contain. But today is not a normal day, we're still bound to our homes, so we've taken the conversation online and we hope you will join us. Today, we'll be talking about isolation. You are here with Ahla, Andrea, and Annabelle. I wanted to talk to you because this is our first conversation online about how isolation has affected your reading because I've heard a lot of different things from different people. Good question. I've Mm. had a bit of a reading funk. I've heard that from a few people actually. Three of my friends who are uh, regular readers and Isabel, the creator of our foundation, (laughs) is also having trouble uh, reading but for me it's been it's been great. I'm actually reading three books at once. <laughs> For the first few weeks of being in lockdown, I think I picked up the book and my mind would just constantly wander away from what I was reading. It's almost like the more time and stillness I've had, the worse it's been to read. One book that I did read in about a day that I managed to not get distracted from was a fast-paced YA book that is completely magical and has nothing, no similarity to, to our world today at all. And that worked really well. Um, that was mm. uh, Children of Blood and Bone, by the way, if you want to read that. Oh, I have read that. It's very good. If you're having trouble reading, um, mm. what is there anything that you've been able to do that you normally wouldn't do? Like, are you becoming more uh, creative in terms of your art or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the first for the first few weeks, I'll try and keep this really brief. For the first few weeks, I turned my attention completely to exercise, to the point where it was the only thing that actually kept me sane. And I have now injured my back. Um, oh no! And now I've done that. I have no choice but to sit in a chair <laughs> and read. But the way I've got around this, so if anybody's having similar problems where their mind just wanders away from the page and they can't focus, I found. Mm-hmm. Um, the white noise generator is really helpful. So I put on the noise of a cafe um, and rain in the background because I oh, actually really read better when I've got like cafe sounds around me. I like reading in coffee shops and I've kind of tried to bring the coffee shop, shop into my bedroom instead. Mm. Um, and I found that really helpful over the past few weeks. That's so interesting because I have young children in this house. I just crave silence. I would never <laughs> want to add any noise to that whatsoever. Uh, one of the things that's been interesting speaking to people as well about kind of isolation and what it's done to our reading habits is when the pandemic first kind of really started gaining traction in the news, there was a sales boom that really surprised me um, for novels about fictional epidemics. And my initial reaction to that was, why? Why would you read about the thing that is so scary in the real world right now? Why would you not want to just completely escape? Yeah. Um, but it's gradually made more sense to me. What about you? Yeah, I guess it's like the, un- the unknown of the, s- the situation we're in, the uncertainty. And so it makes sense to want to read about something similar so that you can read about something you can relate to in this time. We've never 
lived anything like this before. I mean, the entire world stopping. Um, I was making a dish last night and then I realized at 8.30 p.m. that I'm missing one very key ingredient. So I quickly went and I applied for the permit and I wanted to go to the grocery store to pick it up. Literally, four of the grocery stores in my area were shut and it felt like such a weird world out there like you know we're stuck in here and we, we feel like we're, we're not going out to experience the world but actually I had a taste of what the outside world was last night and it was kind of scary so <laughs> I can understand <laughs> wanting to read something similar and, and relate to that. I was just gonna say I like reading quite a lot of post-apocalyptic novels anyway so now that's the last thing I want really. I've gone through the scenarios and and now it's a little bit too close for comfort. So I want to read something light. Tell us, Andrea, what's going to happen next? Oh, well, (laughs) the next thing that's going to happen is that women are going to be outfitted with this bracelet that stops us from talking. Talking to who, though? There's no one to talk to. (laughs) I know. I I read a meme yesterday that said, I'm starting to miss people that I don't even like. (laughs) Yes. That hasn't happened to me yet, but I'm sure the time will come. We've been talking about kind of isolation and its effects on our reading habits because we've got a couple of books that relate to the theme of isolation. If you want to tell us your first book and kind of if these isolation books are what you would gravitate towards normally or if you've just read them because it fits the theme of the podcast. I'm having a thing with Japanese everything right now Japanese literature Japanese culture um, I started to play around a little bit with Duolingo I know a lot of us are on there trying to practice our language or learn a new yeah. language so for me it's been brushing up on my French and also learning Japanese which I'm really really excited about actually because I'm starting to recognize quite a lot of the letters and putting sentences together and so exciting because you know we're home all the time so we finish work at five or six and then I it's straight on. And it feels like a game. Duolingo do it in a really fun way where you're getting scores and you sort of like want to play. And so I was reading uh, Murakami's uh, book last week, uh, Men Without Women, which is a selection of like short stories about men who have lost the women in their lives to, you know, either other men or to passing away or to just very strange situations. And in that book, Murakami mentions another book, which funny enough has a theme of isolation. So the book is Kokoro by Natsume Soseki. Uh, Natsume is actually a huge Japanese author and from uh, 1984 to 2004, his picture was actually on the thousand yen note. So wow. he's kind of a big deal for an author to have his picture on, on money. I mean, that's the first that I've heard. Do you guys know anyone else? We do in Sweden, actually. There's a, oh, a, really? a children's author from, I think she was alive in late 1800s. She's on the 20 crown note. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think Jane Austen is on one of the bills in Great Britain. That says a lot about a nation when you respect an author enough to put them on money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So the story is about, um, uh, so in, in Japanese, uh, and as I've learned on Duolingo, sensei means teacher or an older person who teaches you something. Um, you mean it's not something you just say to sound really cool in a fight? <laughs> <laughs> you can. You can if you like. No one's going to know. So 
this this uh, this younger boy has a relationship. He he meets an an, an older sort of sensei uh, on on a trip that he goes on. He starts to talk to to, to this person and build a, build a relationship. So the first two sections of the book is sort of the narrator telling the story of how they met and and how things develop from there on. Um, and then the third part of the book um, is the letter from Sensei to the narrator. And in the letter, he sort of explains his life story of how he met his wife. And when he was meeting his wife, he had uh, a friend who lived with them in the same house that he invited to help him out. And then the, the friend sort of develops feelings for this woman, but then he tries to get in before he has a chance to confess to her. And this whole strange situation forms in the beginning of that relationship. And so when he ends up marrying this woman, he lives with, with a lot of guilt uh, throughout his life, which stays with him forever. And from Murakami's book and from this book, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, and, and, and from, I and actually looked this up because both books had some uh, incidents of suicide in them. And, and I'm, I started to look into suicide in Japanese literature and stuff. And in, in this particular book, in Kokoro, it comes from a, a form of isolation where you can't share your experience. So it's not like a physical isolation of what we're experiencing right now. It's, it's the kind of isolation where you feel like Maybe the guilt of what you've done needs to live within you because of the shame or because of, um, and, and we were talking about this earlier, Andrea, because I was saying I went to Japan for my uh, honeymoon and you, you've been to Japan as well. And we were saying that the behavior that you see uh, in the subway or out on the street is like people are quite respectful, people are very disciplined, people are so kind. And, and to think that an entire society uh, behaves a certain way, there must be a lot of social pressure and cultural pressure to behave that way and i think on the subject of suicide as well i think japan has a very high uh, suicide rate one of the highest in the world um and i think it comes from the the root of the culture of uh the pressure of having to behave a certain proper way or abiding by the rules of society which uh, quite often is too heavy a burden to carry or share so that's the kind of isolation theme that's in this book do you think there's also something in the history of the, the samurais throwing themselves on their swords being the honourable way out back in the day? There's a word for that that I don't remember now. Do you know, Annabelle? The, it, it was uh, Harakiri. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think yeah. that is something that's just lived on, that it's actually seen as maybe not as honourable, but not as bad as in other cultures? Yeah, it could be. And and this book is actually, it was published in 1914. And it was just sort of coming to the end of the like Meiji era and coming into like a modern uh, Japanese way of life. And so I think a lot of the people who were really holding on to that old traditional way of life found it difficult to uh, go forth into modernization and sometimes decided to take their lives even which is crazy but yeah so remind me of the title again kokoro which actually means uh, literally means heart in in oh. japanese and the author is natsume soseki oh, i'm so yeah. delighted to have a recommendation of something that like i i would never ordinarily have seen in a bookshop or picked up or have heard about before so thank you yeah no, that, that, uh, i was really excited to see that as well when i saw it in murakami's book i immediately looked it up and it just happened to be the theme of isolation like sometimes things are uh so connected to each other in a really funny way 
Uh, I have a book here, which is not actually one of the books that I want to talk about, but I'm reading right now in Arabic, um, which I picked up in a bookshop in London. I picked it up in Saki, and it's Arabs from a perspective of the Japanese. <laughs> so that's <laughs> your funny. next one? It's funny how all these things are just like popping up in my lap and, you know, there's this weird Japanese energy in my house right now. <laughs> I need to learn how to make sushi next. We I said part of the joy of reading is just like perfect timing sometimes for some of our books, especially our favorite ones. I think they become favorites because they, they find us at the right place in time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and when they're like unexpected and the story is something so out of your imagination, it's just all the better for it. I'm really curious to hear what Andrea's got. Okay. So my first one is The Road. I know this might come up back to front, but The Road by Cormac McCarthy is one of the best books I have ever read. Have you, you're oh, wow. making a, a face, Annabelle. Have you read this? No, you've made me feel really silly because I have to confess that it's come up all the time in various book-related articles and I've yes. never read The Road. <laughs> so it was published in 2006. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007. When you read it or you talk about it or you hear about it, it feels like a proper classic, not just a modern classic. If you know mm -hmm. what I mean by that, it feels like one of the books that has been around and recommended to you from 50 years ago. It's really bleak. It's, um, it probably, I should probably do the sort of content warning at this point because <laughs> some people are not going to want to read something like this right now. It's about mm -hmm. man and boy which is how we know the two main protagonists. They don't have names. They are on their own. And actually, man is properly isolated in his drive to care for this boy. He knows that he's got a terrible cough. He knows he is getting weaker. He knows he's not going to make it. And he is completely alone in the world caring for this boy and trying to take him south because they know that they are not going to survive another winter. So it's this burnt, barren, bleak, dangerous world. It's North America. They are trying to get somewhere warmer where there might be food perhaps and they have to avoid the bad guys. So there are almost no people around and the ones that are are the bad guys. And man keeps saying to boy that you know, we are the good guys. And it's incredible. It's one of the most powerful books. So it doesn't sound like it'll be um, fun and games, and it really isn't. But it's so powerful that if you read it, I think it will probably stay with you forever, which is why it keeps coming up in all these conversations and all these articles. And there was a, a Twitter thread yesterday asking, what's the most depressing book you've ever read? And this came up probably more times than any other book, apart from all the quite, uh, quite awful comments about it. There were a lot of people saying, oh my God, I think about that book at least every week. I, that was my favorite book ever, but I would, could never read it again. Why would I do that to myself? So oh, uh, that is my first recommendation. You're the first person to make me want to read it. Oh, well, that's good. But you probably need to have like a, a support dog, lots of chocolate, maybe some upbeat Caribbean music in the background, just anything to counteract what's actually happening in the book. Great to know. <laughs> what's your first That's book? Great. This book is one that you will have already heard about, I'm sure. And there's probably many people listening and watching who have 
already read it or seen it on a shelf. It sold more print copies than any other fiction or non-fiction adult title in 2019. Um, and it's called Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. And I'm talking about it now because I think that it is possibly the perfect compromise book for anybody who both wants to engage with the feelings of isolation that they may be experiencing themselves right now, but anybody who also wants to escape a little at the same time. It's a coming-of-age story. It's also a love story. It is a beautiful ode to the natural world, and it's also got a murder mystery in it as well. Um, and Delia Owens, this is her debut novel, but she's also a retired wildlife biologist um, or zoologist. Side note for research later, if you feel so inclined, there's also an interesting mystery story about her own life as well, but I won't go into that now. But basically it's set between 19, I think, 1959 and 1970 in the North Carolina marsh. And Kaya Clark is the main character. Uh, she's this young girl who has only really ever known abandonment, neglect, and cruelty from the human beings around her. But she has only ever known kindness from a seemingly hostile environment that maybe if you or I came across, we would find neglect and hostility there instead. But to her, the marsh becomes this kind of constant companion. It's literally the only reliable thing in her life this seemingly desolate landscape, which to her and through her eyes as a reader, you come to know is actually teeming with beautiful and brilliant life. And it's interesting that when you read the book, it's told through two separate timelines. One is the timeline of Kaya growing up in the marsh and connecting with that. And the other timeline is the investigation of the murder happening in the future. And eventually those two timelines meet. So you've got this really pacey plot, but also this sense of reassessing what we understand of loneliness and how you can be kind of lonely in a crowd of people. You know, that classic mm. understanding that you can be lonely in a crowd and not maybe in an empty swamp. It's just, I'd recommend this book if you like beautiful language, but also if you like a pacey plot. I can't actually believe still to this day how she managed to create a book that was all these different things in once and that would appeal to somebody who likes murder mystery, somebody who's maybe feeling lonely, somebody who's not feeling lonely, um, somebody who likes a love story, somebody who doesn't. There is nobody I can think of that I wouldn't recommend this book to and I find that quite rare. Um, I'd also recommend it for anybody who's a fan of the Tiger King um, documentary oh and is looking for something to bridge that gap because you've got characters with difficult turbulent pasts you've got a bit of maybe a whiff of murder in there and some hostile wildlife so I think that's a nice <laughs> little crossover book for you where the crawdads sing excellent that's funny I would not have associated the two at all have you read it Ahlam? no I haven't but I've been I've been wanting to read it but um when she talked about Tiger King, I was like, I, I would not associate, like, that's not the image I had of the book. But, and now I'm like, do I want to read it? Because I watched one episode of Tiger King and I was like, this is just weird. <laughs> it is so very weird. weird. It gets weirder. Do not expect anything resembling sense and just anything straightforward or logical about it from this point on. It doesn't get more logical. Yeah. And there's um, like, there's no narrative. 
it doesn't yeah. it doesn't follow uh, structure it's <laughs> completely bananas no structure this at least has structure um yeah but yeah i would say that where the crawdads sing i know tiger king is a kind of very a, a very loose <laughs> connection but i would say that it's kind of in the venn diagram between educated by tara westover and tiger king <laughs> and it's like uh, a okay. fictional gap in the middle I, I feel like I wonder if the author, when writing this book, actually intended for it to cater to so many audiences. I don't know. I've wondered that myself. Mm. But then I wonder that about a lot of books. Don't you? Where you read it and you think, did this, this become is a the thing perfect. you wanted to? Or is this kind of this child, this kind of Frankenstein's monster that you love, but you don't really recognize anymore. So yeah, that's my first isolation book. Mm. Excellent. Good choice. I like that. I have just one more book for today. It's Practices of Selfhood. And this is a book that I keep coming back to. It's a little bit academic. It's actually a a dialogue between two professors. So Professor uh, Zygmunt Bauman is a professor of sociology in University of Leeds. And Professor Rain Rod teaches uh, Japanese studies. (laughs) (laughs) Completely by coincidence, completely by coincidence mm-hmm. in, in Helsinki. And it's sort of a dialogue that goes back and forth. And it's all about what makes the self. And actually in a modern setting where the self, I mean, the self is dependent on your environment, but our environment this day and age is changes all the time. And there are no certainties. And from one, one day to the next, things are so up and down that, you know, it's, it's all about talking about what makes us who we are uh, and who hasn't, I mean, I, I can't think of any, anyone in my circle nowadays that hasn't wondered about what, it, what that self is. Is it your genetic heritage? Is it your, you know, cultural preference? Is it, what is it that makes us who we are? Um, and I was kind of going through, because whenever I read a book and Annabelle, you know, I like to do this, I underline things that I like in, in any book. And I was just looking through some of the things that I've underlined just randomly. I'm going to read a couple. In a society that prohibits everything and where even a minor expression of human weakness results in the breach of some law or another, it is almost inevitable that all but the most robotic people will find themselves on the wrong side of the law in some respect. So this this, this cool, cool thoughts like that, that um, that I've underlined in the book. And then there's another part about sort of death and it's a death is a disease whose cure, if it existed, would be worse than the disease itself. Trajectory of life is a limited one and therefore it matters. In other words, without mortality, life would have no meaning. It is thanks to the awareness of mortality that a lived through mortality uh, that it has. It is thanks to our awareness of our mortality that the days count and we count them. So just things that I think, especially in isolation right now, wondering about who we are, what is our significance in the big picture and who's ruling the world right now? Is it human beings? Is it the economy? Is it governments? Is it the virus? Uh, Who's in charge here? So there's, I think, a lot of interesting contemplation in this book that makes me go back to it time and time again. That sounds really interesting. So next, I have um, not one, but two coming-of-age novels that I wanted to talk about. Sorry. Dun-dun-dun! Yeah. So I, as I was looking through my red items on my Kindle, it struck me that a lot of a lot of the characters are either making choices 
because they are lonely and isolated or they are in situations that they might not have brought about, but because they are isolated and lonely. So it's really hard to mm. choose. But these two coming of age novels are The History of Wolves, which is written by Emily Friedland. Have you read this? It was nominated for the Booker, Man Booker Prize a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. Not one that got a, a, a lot of attention, I thought. I didn't see a lot yeah, of- Yeah, you're right. Not many people wrote about it. Not many people talked about it. But I thought it was a really, really interesting and heartbreaking story about this 14-year-old girl who is living with her parents in a really ramshackle cabin on the edge of a lake down a path from a road that's down the road from a small town that has nothing more than a bait and tackle shop and a supply store gas station and possibly a bank maybe I don't remember and then that's down the road from another small town it's basically in the middle of nowhere in northern Minnesota and even within that small community she is an outcast because her parents moved there to join some kind of commune that then faltered and and it, she's just it's really heartbreaking situation where she has no friends her parents I think are caring but busy and you know keeping their family going and um, there's a subplot of a of a new teacher that comes in that could possibly be her anchor to, to sort of the school environment but turns out to be um, a very suspect man who then exits stage left um, so what we're left with is a story about a 14-year-old girl who becomes enamored with this young family that moves into a cabin across the lake who have a young, a young son called Paul. And she starts babysitting for Paul. And this is, this is her chance to be part of a normal family and to have normal family interactions, she, she feels. But unfortunately, Paul isn't quite normal and the family is not quite normal. And we find out from page two or three or something, we find out that Paul is actually doomed. So that's not a spoiler. What we are working our way towards with this story is finding out how exactly that happens. And mm. it's, it's incredibly, incredibly sad how she's this really young girl who doesn't understand what is happening. And she's exposed to these, um, these events and she sees things that she doesn't really understand in terms of the things people do for love or the things people don't do for love that they might think are the right things, but she somehow knows they're not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's really beautiful. It's quite slow paced. It's, a, it's like a, you know, a very literary novel for people who can enjoy that sort of slow building of, of a very quiet and isolated world but it's beautiful what what, what did you think Annabelle? It's uh, a long time since I've read it but it's interesting you mentioned the pace because to my mind now I remember finding it quite pacey oh but that's perhaps because of the other books on the booker list that I was reading <laughs> alongside yes. it quite mm. frankly but it was exactly like you I remember reading it and thinking why is no one talking about this in the same way that they're talking about the other books Yes. This is clearly quite special. And I remember I arranged an interview with the author and just being in awe of 
of everything that she had to say and the care that had gone into the book. And it's just when you read it as well, I don't think you feel at any point that she doesn't know exactly where each single word is landing and is Mm. taking you. And I think that's part of why we want to keep reading sometimes, even if things aren't necessarily like a Dan Brown novel. It's the knowledge that your author knows exactly what they're doing. And that is compelling in itself sometimes. Even Mm. if it's a slow burn, you know that there's a fire coming, you know? Yes, yeah. Mm. And I mean, it's it's really, it's a real skill to be so subtle when it's so horrific as well, what happens. It's it's just, the way she strings together the words, it's so simple and so perfectly in keeping with a character being a 14-year-old in northern Minnesota. It's just, it, I, I thought it was really beautifully put together. So I wonder sorry. about the Booker Prize shortlist um, always, because a lot of the books that do get shortlisted are uh, complicated or a slow <laughs> read. And yeah. so, you know, what makes the judges choose those books and who are they being chosen for? So if the shortlist is out there, who is the ideal audience for that? Is it people who work in the industry like you guys, like, you know, people who can really appreciate that literary um, journey, even, you know, if it's understanding that the word is, you know, the words are landing exactly <laughs> where and when they should be. And, and sort of, it's, it's sort of like the Oscars as well, right? When they pick, pick films that are not necessarily your uh, mainstream popular, easy to experience films. Some of them are quite, you know, difficult to go through. Yeah, I, I feel like the Booker long list is always, it's a bit like when you're a very young child and it's Christmas Day and you know that you might like about 40% of your Christmas presents, but you want to, like, you can't get, wait to tear them open to find out yeah. what it is. Um, yeah. And I found some really amazing books on the Booker list, but also some that I might not have chosen. Mm. But I think that's a good sign, isn't it? Because it's often a lot of people like the ones that you didn't necessarily like. So I think the fact that you don't like all of them is a good sign that they are varying the choices yeah. that they Audiences. make as yeah. judges. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Should I get to my second coming of age novel quickly? It was just completely different and much pacier because I felt like I couldn't have two slow burning, beautiful, tough novels. So The Girls by Emma Klein. It's really pacey it's like a thriller but it's a coming of age novel set in the 60s around the last days of the manson charles manson thing so it's a young girl again as our main protagonist who sees these girls because you know manson was surrounded by young girls who fell under his spell who did his bidding and this girl is not particularly enamored with Manson himself she doesn't even see him to start with she just sees these slightly older teenage girls and the freedom they have the way they've got this long hair and they have fun and they are completely wild and free and she looks at that and she is in her life her parents have just gotten divorced she is basically left to drift and there seems to be a place for her going with these girls to this abandoned farm where they are where they're living and she gets sort of enamored with one of the main girls and goes with them and her mum doesn't even really seem to notice or 
care that she's not around. And she manages to get out of it. She has some fairly horrific experiences with them. But when when everything goes down, she isn't there on the night itself. And she is telling this story from years later, looking back. And it's really, it, I mean, it was a massive bestseller. I think it sold the movie rights within the first 30 seconds of being released. It was just huge. And it's a really, it's a really good read. It's a really fun read, even though it's quite a dark subject matter. Do you know when it was published? I feel like it was around the same time, possibly 2016, maybe. Did you read it? Because I was just, no, I didn't. I remember picking it up weirdly like you were saying earlier Adam, about things just kind of falling into your lap I remember mm. picking it off the bookshelf in the office after I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood oh <laughs> like it was the book I randomly picked up after watching that film and I was a little bit creeped out and I put it back on the shelf <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny um, when that happens I think I think people are really intrigued and mesmerized by cults right Everybody wants mm. to know how people mm. end up in them and, and what makes them stay. So, so I, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating read from that perspective because when you, if you, I don't know if you've ever watched that TV show on Netflix, um, is it Aquarius? That's about Charles Manson with David Duchovny. I, I saw the one with Osho, oh. which is another cult story. <laughs> I, oh, I think I saw that as well. But yeah, there's one that's specifically about Manson, Manson which I think has got David Duchovny as a detective hunting him and watching that you just don't really see why they why they stay you know yeah what's he got I think that's why they keep returning to it because there's still so many unanswered questions about how why yes <laughs> there's a lot of people in the world who don't belong to anything at all and that sense of belonging somewhere even if it's false can you'll tell yourself all sorts of stories just to feel good in that moment something that is, came up in the runaways by Fatima Bhutto as well i was mm. just going to say this is this is when we're talking about isolation and loneliness i was like every single book has an element of this almost every single book yeah um, well it, it's difficult to narrow it down because it's one of the things that scares us the most isn't it being alone but you well, know in you. a way in a way this um, quarantine at home, we're super connected. I mean, we're, we're in meetings all day, morning to five or six o'clock, and then we're talking to our families on video call. And it's not, it's not real isolation. It's just, it's a physical isolation, yeah. but we are super connected. I'm actually talking to, you know, I can't, before this, I can't remember the last time I had a long phone call with a friend, you know, it's also always WhatsApp or we'll meet up or something, but we're actually talking, having long conversations over the phone or, or Skype, which we wouldn't do, do before. But I think so. we're, we're fortunate because we have that. We have, and also during this period of working from home, I've just felt like I'm really lucky to have a job and a purpose during the day because it would be really, really hard to yeah, absolutely. be at home without, without any, any claim on your time. Mm. And having the kind of job where you can work from home, because there's a lot of yeah. people out there who, whose jobs depend on physically being there. And yeah. so you feel for, for them in times like this. We're really, really lucky. I've actually spent the most time not, not actually reading, exercising, but I think just feeling phenomenally lucky and really guilty about it. But we keep reading. <laughs> this is it. So what's your, your next book? 
Annabelle? Okay, well, I'm going to do a throwaway recommendation that I'm not going to talk too much about because you mentioned cults and isolation. One of the best books I ever read on a kind of prize list was actually a YA book for the Carnegie shortlist one year. And the book is called After the Fire by Will Hill. And mm-hmm. it is loosely based on the um, on Waco, Texas. Yeah. And everything that happened there through the eyes of a teenage girl. And it is honestly one of the best books I have ever read. I'd never heard of the author before and it's absolutely phenomenal. So if you're interested in that subject matter or even if you're not, I'd highly recommend that. The other book that I have, I have some nonfiction for you. I've actually found nonfiction a little bit easier to ease my way back into reading again than fiction, weirdly enough. And I'm just going to grab the book one second. It's called At Home by Bill Bryson. Lots of notes. (laughs) Yes, yes. These are all the interesting, but this always happens with a Bill Bryson. So I think anybody listening or watching will be familiar with how brilliant this guy is at bringing not necessarily really exciting fact to just vivid, witty life. Mm -hmm. And it's called At Home, A Short History of Private Life. And to give you an overview, I'm going to read you the back of the book. The history of household life isn't just a history of beds and sofas and kitchen stoves, as I had vaguely supposed it to be, but of scurvy and guano and the Eiffel Tower and bed bugs and body snatching and just about everything else that has ever happened. Houses aren't refuges from history. They are where history ends up. And this book has just been an absolute joy to dip in and out of. Every single page in the fashion of Every Bill Bryson book is just completely packed with information that will be handy at all your Zoom dinner parties. But also it's been delightful going back to the isolation theme. I had never really noticed this book on my shelf before. And it wasn't until I think a few days ago when I looked at it and I thought, I'm at home. (laughs) I'm at home quite a lot at the moment. I wonder what good old Bill has to say about that. And not all of it is going to be immediately relevant to each of us on this call or listening because Bill Bryson starts his journey from a very UK-centric place. His house is an old rectory in Norfolk. So he starts by talking about the history there. But because it's so interesting you don't even mind and you end up being quite grateful that he starts quite broad in terms of the history of who we are as a civilization Mm -hmm. until it gets narrower and narrower in focus until you realize that you have an entire history of the world that ends up in an explanation for why you have windows in your house and why you should be really grateful for that why the height of your doorways means that you should be incredibly grateful as well. Why your hallway uh, is now really, really narrow, but in medieval times, the hall used to be the main living space of pretty much everybody that lived in the dwelling. And now when I walk upstairs, I appreciate them in a way that I never had before. When I go to the upstairs area of the house, I appreciate that the upstairs area, particularly in maybe... Britain or when houses were first being built would have been a real novelty because they weren't able to have upstairs areas until you were able to have chimneys so that smoke wasn't everywhere and you were Mm. able to breathe. And there are all these things that I had never really noticed about the place that I occupy most Mm. of my most of my time. Um, Just sitting in a chair looking at furniture, looking at lights, 
And it was a beautiful moment to be able to look up from this book and see a room that I had looked at for so long in the same way, completely new. And it was almost like I'd gone on holiday in my own house. <laughs> so I highly, highly recommend that you read At Home by Bill Bryson. It will give you a greater in appreciation and gratitude, whatever your living space looks like, for just the most basic comfort of human existence and how far we have come to get there. I love that. That's great. So yeah, that's, that's my nonfiction recommendation. <laughs> I love that. It's so difficult to get your hand on books right now, especially for me, since I like to, I don't have a Kindle, so I read everything. Everything <laughs> um, I read. Yeah. <laughs> I read everything either as a paper book or uh, audio. So I might uh, try to order that on audio so I can immediately get my hands on it. I found myself picking up the books that I already have rather than um, necessarily buying lots more, it which was. is what I tended to do rather yeah. than being satisfied with what I already have on my bookshelf. So it's been forcing me to read things that have been neglected for far too long. Mm. I never look too close at, at what we have as well. And, and there's books in every, every corner of the house. And I was telling my husband the other day, I was saying that we need more. I think, you know, we're running out of options. He's like, no, <laughs> we're not. There's plenty of options. I'm like, no, I know it's there. It's just... <laughs> It's always really fun, isn't it, when you when you do the classic, almost absent-mindedly to yourself, oh, I really don't have enough books, or I really need to get that book, or if I'm scrolling through an article going, I have to get that book, and then your partner's like, are you serious right now? <laughs> have you seen your room? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's funny, and actually maybe it helps to... to to have themes in mind when you're looking through your books, because when you said isolation, then I started to go through them with that in mind or, you know, whatever theme we're going to have next. If you go through them with a theme in mind, you're like, ah, oh, actually. And now I'd like to remind you that the next theme is guilty pleasures. <laughs> I'm I not sure there is this. any yes. guilty pleasures with books. See, this is the argument we're going to have. Well, <laughs> I can think of maybe one or two, but not that many. It, it will be really fun. I can't wait. Uh, should we just quickly go through the books we've talked about? Atlan, mm -hmm. what were you, your two books and authors? So mine were uh, Kokoro by Natsume Soseki and Practices of Selfhood by Zygmunt Bowman and Ryan uh, Rod. But there was also one more by Haruki Murakami. Yes, uh, Men Without Women. So <laughs> I spoke about Cormac McCarthy's book called The Road which everybody must read, and also The History of Wolves by Emily Friedland and The Girls by Emma Klein. And I spoke about Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, which is a fiction book. And my other isolation book that I recommended was At Home by Bill Bryson. And if you like cults, you can also read After the Fire by Will Hill. Right. Thanks, guys. You can tell us all your opinions and shoot down all of our ideas or suggest a topic or just tell us about the book you liked by emailing comms at emiratelipfest.com or you can send us a message on social media we are on facebook twitter instagram and if you're watching this rather than listening you will know that we're also on youtube if you're listening to audio only don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts this has been the Boundless Book Club, the isolation episode. 
thank you for listening